11. Good opportunity to be reminded that you want to be bringing your Bible with you to church. I know we provide notes and we stick a bunch of passages in the outline and try and give you something to take home with you so that this is not the only time you're going to interact with this message. God has divinely ordained that there be times like this where we receive the word, but we need to go back and get with God quite often. There's some dimension of what you're going to hear today that God wants to uniquely communicate to you. And so we would encourage you, hopefully early in the week, that you've got some kind of a time slot, Sunday night, Monday morning, uh, early in the week, where you just sit down again with the notes there and you just let God lead you in something specifically relevant to where you are. That's how God does these things in our lives. So, uh, But there's nothing like bringing your own Bible and having your own Bible to remember where things are and to read along with us. So please make sure you're doing that each week. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unique qualities that it brings to our lives. And Lord, thank you for this particular passage that you intended to affect us in a particular way. So, Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. God, do in us what must be done by your spirit, that this living word might find its living place in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. A little context in this passage is somewhat helpful. This is the very end of Jesus' ministry. So you've had... Three years of Jesus going public, and at this point, 
What a resume he has. He is the talk of the town. He has done miracle after miracle. He has spoken in a way that's enamored people and amazed them. Remember just the history of the Gospels of listening to Jesus teach was for people to encounter words and insights that caused people to be amazed. They were amazed at the authority with which he spoke. They were amazed at these words. No one had spoken words like these. His teaching and then his miraculous signs that occurred over and over and over again, healing after healing, multiplying of food, raising people from the dead. And then the the greatest, perhaps the greatest possible miracle has just occurred, right? The rest of John chapter 11, uh, Peter taught through that a couple of weeks ago, is the story of Lazarus. This man who was, he wasn't just dead, he was quite dead, right? This wasn't just one of those, well, you know, maybe he just was really just unconscious for the last day and Jesus, no, no, this man stinketh, as some of the translations say. He'd been in the ground for four days, wrapped, entombed, and wrapped up in all the, the burial ointments that they put upon him. So he is quite dead. And Jesus performs what seems to be the most amazing miracle of all, bringing him back to life. I mean, there's nothing easy about this, right? I mean, Peter didn't have time to go into all the details, but, you know, it's a miracle for this guy all wrapped up, be able to make his way to the front door. I mean, he's wrapped up. He's going to need assistance. He kind of, I don't know, he kind of come to the, you know, he's, he's, he's wrapped up. And yet Jesus just speaks a word and he comes back to life after four days of death. Now, what do you think is going to be the next thing in the storyline of Jesus? What happens next as this crowd has gathered in Bethany? Bethany is kind of like Metairie to Jerusalem. It's a little suburb. It's less than two miles away. So this is a major deal. People knew about Jesus. They, they probably knew something about his closeness to this family. And here he comes showing up after days. I'm pretty sure this is, this is probably an interesting crowd that is gathered for this event. And out comes, I mean, can you put yourself here? Out comes Lazarus. Hopping to the opening of the door. Now, even if you're skeptical in this moment, what effect does that have on you? I mean, I'm thinking, okay, chapter 12. When we get into chapter 12, when we finish chapter 11, the storyline is going to be, People were amazed. They were in awe. The leaders, right? If this was a movie, couldn't you just see the leaders watching this happen? And just sort of whatever's close to them, just kind of sitting down on it and scratching their heads and going, this guy really is who he says he is. Wouldn't you think that's the next thing in the storyline? But it's not the next thing in the storyline. We get introduced to the design of what really is a mafia hit about to go down. The authorities, the guys who are the movers and shakers of the day, have decided it's time to put an end to this. He needs to die. I mean, is that where you think the storyline would go next? He just raised somebody from the dead. Three years of doing incredible good to humanity. And now they're going to kill him. Really? 
How on earth does that happen? Does that seem like where the story should go to you? Well, this morning I want to talk to us about overcoming unbelief. Look again in this passage in verse 45. Here's an audience gathered and Jesus is going to do ministry to an audience that will get to observe it and then be affected by it. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So many saw something... And because of what he did, they believed in him. Now, let me, let me chase off on a thought here. Because what, what's happening here is what falls under the category of signs and wonders. The ministry of Jesus came to earth. He didn't just say really cool, clever things. He disrupted life amidst all of its natural trappings. So where there was you know, a little lunchbox full of food, he's feeding 5,000 plus with that. There's no natural explanation for that. It's a sign and a wonder. It's something unusual. Somebody who has experienced illness in their body their whole life and just with a word or just him speaking, instantly they're healed. There's no natural explanation for that. It's just a supernatural intervention. Jesus raises this man from the dead. These are these are signs and wonders in the ministry of Christ. Now, We are, you know, what Jesus began, we are continuing in. So it raises the question for us. What's the place of signs and wonders in the church? And this used to be a little bit of a controversial thing. I think that the church is getting deluded and overwhelmed with information. But years ago, I can remember a guy coming on the scene. His name was John Wimber. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you might recognize his name. And John Wimber had a ministry that really was a ministry of signs and wonders. And it was rather controversial to watch his ministry take place. I actually had been to meetings many years ago where he was involved. And his emphasis was that signs and wonders should be present accompaniment to the gospel. And he preached from the word and said he could see no reason why these things should have stopped when Jesus' ministry ended. And, and it was greatly controversial because, you know, quite honestly, a guy who stands in front of the Christian audience and says, hey, there should be signs and wonders in our midst. Well, for many of us, I'd, I'd rather say most of us, there'd be a great unfamiliarity in our lives with signs and wonders. So immediately we start feeling like, oh, okay, well, is there something defective about my walk? Is there something not right? And so for many who never experienced signs and wonders, there begin to be explanations as to why you shouldn't be experiencing signs and wonders. As a matter of fact, even Jesus made comments about people who were seeking signs and wonders. You know, the evil and perverse generation that seeks after signs. But none shall be given to you. He rebuked people for looking for signs. And then there was other explanations given as to why signs and wonders were not for today. They were for the apostolic age. They verified the, the starting point of the gospel message in the beginning. For the apostles. But today we shouldn't expect that sort of thing. And some people still hold that kind of a position. That would not be our position. Our position would be that signs and wonders in nowhere in Scripture would be indicated that they should not be continuing. The very ministry of Christ has been given to the church. The kingdom coming that came with him with the power and authority is still the kingdom coming today upon earth. Jesus began something that is continuing by the operation of the Holy Spirit. 
And, and you can make, I think, wonderful biblical argument for that. Even when Paul presented his own ministry in the end of Romans, he, he talks about how he brought the gospel ministry from Jerusalem all the way around the, to Illyricum. And this, this is what he said about it. He said it was the, he brought the Gentiles into obedience. Here's how he did it. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So, you know, full gospel ministry, if you want to say it that way, it is not just words. It's not just an explanation of the gospel. It's not just the storyline. Jesus Christ was a true figure and he died and he rose again and he's available today to cleanse you and make you whole. And here's the information. It is both word and deed. It is the power of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders that interrupt the natural flow of this world. It is the kingdom of God which will last forever intruding into this space. The kingdom that has fallen in this world. So I very much believe that signs and wonders in no way should be something that we are not incorporating in the gospel ministry. And, and you have to be careful as a church. If you've not grown up seeing that, if it's not familiar with you, you can start sort of acclimating your Christianity to be a signless and wonderless less ministry. You don't see it in your life. You don't come to expect it anymore. That's not a good posture. But even though Jesus rebuked folks for seeking signs, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is very much a sign book. There were signs that were given. You know, what Sign? I mean, what is a sign? A sign points to something. It explains something and, and it directs your attention, not so much to the sign, but to the implications of the sign. Right? I mean, when you see a sign telling you how far it is to Baton Rouge, you don't pull over and stop there, do you? It, it's informing you of what to go on to. It's about something else besides itself. Well, that's what this was about. And there's many signs in John. You can look through several of these. I just put a few support this thought. John 2, verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why? Because of something he said? No, because of something he did. He had been saying many things, but he did something that affected their faith. John two twenty three. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when... They saw the signs that he was doing. John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. See, the Bible actually had associated signs with the coming of the Messiah. John seven thirty one. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The signs were validating that Jesus really was the Messiah, as the scriptures had supported. Now, I want to make a point here, because of the way in which John records signs, that signs can be both witnessed and also read about. But see, what we have in our hands here today is a very strange book. And, and you need to, to sort of handle it like it could go off on you, you know? Like this thing, be careful where you set it down. I don't want to turn my back on it. it it's not a book like any other book. Amen. It is a living book. Amen. 
It is a book that has been given innate qualities by a supernatural God to make this book a supernatural book. So when it records signs, it brings with it its own ability and the written form to affect you in a similar way that the sign would affect you had you been standing there watching Lazarus hop to the front door. Listen, John chapter 20. We started this study of John with this passage. Verse 30. Peter quoted it again a couple weeks ago. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So, implication of that right there. It's not necessary that you know everything about what Jesus has done on earth. Which makes me, every time I open this word, which makes me realize this is hand-selected. This story today sits right next to another story, and the other story didn't get recorded, and you and I don't know anything about it. God said, of all the things that Jesus has done, include this and that, and this and that, not that, not that, this. So when we read this passage today, God has chosen to put something in this passage to affect us in a particular way. He goes on and he says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, this this is an important thing. I probably need to, to be more intentional about saying this more often because we live in a universalist society that doesn't have a problem accepting ideas about Jesus. As long as you don't get too narrow as though you have to believe those ideas in a particular way. I like the option of believing about Jesus however I want to believe about him. So you can tell me the stories, and that's great, and then I'll do with them whatever I want. But that's not why the Bible's inspired, and that's not why these events are recorded. They lead you to a particular place. They lead you to the place of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Therefore, it is necessary that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. It is necessary before God that you believe that he's the son of God. And if you do not believe those things, you do not have life. That's what the Bible says in that one verse. And then it says this repeatedly elsewhere. But what it says about the written word, look, these are written so that you may believe. These things are written so that you may believe. Now, there was a lot of believing going on when Jesus was performing signs. People would see the sign. They knew something about him. He had a resume already. There were some Old Testament passages that pointed out who the Messiah would be. And then a sign would come and they would believe. Now, God is not saying that, okay, now for the rest of eternity... I'm going to do all these signs over and over and over again. Interestingly, God says, I wrote them down so that you could believe. So apparently, it is sufficient in God's economy for you and I to come to faith without necessarily seeing the same signs that they saw, but reading them in his word. These things are written so that you may believe. Now listen, there, there's a, this is where everybody needs to have a view of humanity that, that sort of has 
us drinking out of a thimble full of information. I mean, how much really of the universe, of human existence, of history, of eternity do, does humanity even possess in his knowledge? I mean, if we flatter ourselves, maybe a bucket full in an ocean. I'm thinking just a thimble, but I'll, I'll be gracious and say a bucket full. <clears throat> God does things that, that may go beyond human thinking and human ability. Right? Can we just at least agree on that? Because if you've got a God who doesn't even do that, I don't even want to know your God. I've got people that I live with that are as good as the God you got. They don't know everything, and they can only think within the realms of what I can think about too. God can eclipse that. God can go beyond it. God comes right out and says, my ways are not your ways, and your ways aren't mine. Mine are so much higher than yours are. So immediately we know we're not on equal ground with God, and God has done some things that our confidence gets put in God and God having done it. Now, here's why I'm saying all that. You know, what do you do when you come to the place where you, you read something in the Bible and someone challenges you on it? Why do you, be- you believe what? Why do you believe that? And then you defend it by saying, well, because the Bible says so. And then the person responds to you like you're an idiot. Now, in reality, what's happening right there? That person believes that there's something superior to the Word of God, that the Word of God needs to be weighed by. I mean, there's, there's science, after all. There's human thinking in test tubes and men wearing coats. We've read a lot of books. Why do you believe it? Well, because the Bible says it. See, now listen, Christian, before you want to not have that to be your answer, right? because you don't sound smart enough when you give that as an answer, right? You want to say, well, not only does the Bible say it, but Josephus said it, and uh, you know, historians said it, and it's almost as though like God's word isn't enough. He's going to need some help if we're really going to believe this stuff. Let me tell you something. If that person's heart wants to believe, they will believe it because of this word. These things were written so that you may believe. If you're trying to win an argument with somebody who doesn't want to believe this, you're trying to convert somebody who doesn't want to be converted. Because the day that person wants to be converted, this Bible will be believable to them. It goes hand in hand. It's almost as though God has given this word innate qualities. It has something in itself that when faith, true faith, gets around this word, it it goes together. It marries together and it bears witness. So that your answer does make sense. I, I believe it because the Bible says it. It makes perfect sense. It's like when you get gasoline, which has certain innate qualities around a spark. You don't have to coach this thing. You don't have to manipulate it. You've got an explosion on your hands. Just the qualities that are in gasoline and the qualities that are in a flame create combustion when they come together. It's like God has made his word to be that kind of a word so that he can say, all I've got to do is write it down and say it, and the heart of faith will believe it. Whether you can put it in a test tube or not, God has made the universe that way. And signs have a place, but we need to be careful about what we translate our thinking about signs. Look at J.C. Ryle. It says, Let us beware of supposing that miracles alone 
have any power to convert men's souls and to make them Christians. The idea is a complete delusion. To fancy, as some do, that if they saw something wonderful done before their eyes in confirmation of the gospel, they would at once cast off all indecision and serve Christ is a mere idle dream. It is the grace of the Spirit in our hearts and not miracles that our souls require. See, that's why one doesn't have to say, well, that's fine. I mean, the Bible, that all happened so long ago. You know, if Jesus were to stand right here today and I could see that, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. That wouldn't be the reason why you'd believe. Now, you might believe, but the same reason for you to believe in that day is present right here when you're holding this word. The same reason is present right here, right now. This word has innate qualities to it in the same way that a sign would provoke you in a certain way. But it's not foolproof. Right? And I just I think I put a couple of passages or maybe I didn't in your outline. This when we interact with the word, we're interacting with this dynamic, this mysterious dynamic. First Corinthians ten verse eleven says, Now these things happen to them as an example. Speaking of the Israelites and the story of redemption that God placed in our past through their history. But they were written down for our instruction. Events in the past written down to have an impact on us today. Psalm 78.5, we looked at this passage last week for fathers. God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. This is written testimony. Which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. Listen, know them because they saw them firsthand? No. Know them because they were written down and given to them. Why? So that they might set their hope in God. A person's heart placing the faith that's in them in the hope that's in God. How did it arrive at them? Generation after generation. By God repeating all those signs to the next generations? No, by God doing signs and then recording signs and then making the recording of it to have a life of its own in the heart of anybody who would believe. So remember, when we come to this word and you read these accounts, you're holding something that it doesn't just sit on the page. It reaches into you in a mysterious way, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the divisions of the soul and the spirit. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of man. When you open this word... It's going to mess with you because it's alive. It's not like reading the encyclopedia. It's not a history book. It's the word of God. It's unique. So when we come to this element here in this storyline here, faith, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in reality, you have before you in reading this story as much as much ability to come to faith today as those who watched Lazarus hop to the front door of the tomb. Because the same thing that needs to go on in your heart was the same thing that needed to go on in their heart. And it wasn't just the sign that did it. It was the God behind the sign doing something behind the scenes in your own heart so that you actually could ever come to faith. So let me conclude a thought real quickly on signs and wonders. One... 
They are ordained by God as a means through which some will come to faith and believe. We should not discard them. Secondly, they are not guarantees that people will respond to them, though. Therefore, we should assign them an appropriate place in our ministry pursuits. Listen, if I could, I could present this word to you and then appeal to you to believe and trust Christ, or I could raise someone from the dead this morning and appeal to you to trust Christ, and the same operation that needs to go off in your heart accompanies both. It's not as though you can sit here today and say, well, you know, if I could see that dude hop to the door, I'd believe. Uh, the same thing would make you believe after you read that word. It's the same thing that would have to make you believe then, too. Now, here's the reality. Go back to the passage here. Here's the reality. Verse 45, many of the Jews believed. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done and started down the road of putting him to death. Huh. Now, does this capture your attention? You've got an audience. I don't know how big the audience was. You have an audience that watches an event take place and two responses come forth. Some believe their heart is compelled and they believe who Jesus is. Some respond and want to have him killed and go tell the people so that they can put that in motion. One event, one equally impacting event Two different responses at exactly the same time. Now, this, this educates us about something is going on here that we may or may not be recognizing. As I remember, I remember watching this happen. I think it was one of the first alphas that we ever did. It may have been the first one. And it was week three. And I'd just given the presentation on why the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? My, I was seated at a table right in front, got down after the message, sat down, and I, I, these vivid, vivid images are in my head. I'm sitting at the, sitting at the table. There's, there's about nine of us at the table there, and two people over to my left is Ellen Pell. Is Ellen here this morning? Ellen, Ellen is about two people over to the left. She somewhere? Ellen, do you remember this? After that, she, she is in tears. I just have sat down. She's in tears. And I think I just asked some kind of a question. And, and every time she would have to answer something, she would apologize because she was in tears and just choking back tears. And I remember her explaining the lights coming on and her understanding why the cross was necessary. What was equally amazing was she was seated here, three people over, there was an older man sitting in exactly the same table who had just listened to exactly the presentation, and he didn't get it at all. He sat there answering every question wrong. He didn't get, I mean, the cross may not have ever even occurred for him. Because his means of approaching God didn't need the cross. It wasn't about the cross. It was, and he just sat there and explained himself like we had just talked about how to cut up oranges. <laughs> same exact message listened to by two people exactly the same time in the same room. One person gets it and another person doesn't. How does that happen? 
I mean, here's a group gathered to watch a person be raised from the very dead. And he comes out and he's alive by the person who's got a resume claiming to be the Messiah. I'm thinking, no brainer. Everybody gets this. We're going to conclude the story with, and they all believed. (laughs) And yet, that's not how the story goes. And now listen, I want to hang us on this, because the fact that we're asking this question with with such surprise, like, how how did they not get it, is rather theologically informing about us. And what we understand about what it takes to overcome unbelief in our lives. J.C. Ryle again says, We must never wonder if we see abounding unbelief in our own times and around our own homes. It may seem at first inexplicable to us how men cannot see the truth which seems so clear to ourselves And do not receive the gospel which appears so worthy of acceptance. But the plain truth is that man's unbelief is a far more deeply seated disease than it is generally reckoned, even by us. It is proof against the logic of facts, against reasoning, against argument, against moral suasion. Nothing can melt it down but the grace of God. If we ourselves believe, we can never be too thankful. See, when one understands the condition of unbelief that every human being lives in, the question isn't, why don't they get it? I don't understand. Why don't they just believe it? The question really is, why? Why does it make sense to me? Why were there some gathered who watched what Jesus did and their hearts believed in him while in the same meeting watching the most compelling thing that could have gone on before their eyes? Some did not believe. Listen, the reality, theologically, the reality is you don't just trip and fall out of unbelief. You must be blasted out. Unbelief in the human condition is incredibly powerful. We're not talking a cheap set of magnets that you buy at the store to stick things together. We're we're talking gravitational orbital field. Jump as high as you want. Ain't none of us here breaking free of the gravitational force on this planet. Unbelief is like that. I mean, look, look at this condition here. I'll look through these passages quickly with you. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. This would be a few of many informing us. It says, the natural person, this is the audience gathered to observe this sign. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able. Did you see that? He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I don't care whether you're wearing a lab coat or not. I don't care how many degrees and letters you got behind your name. I don't don't care how much you've studied. There is a realm of the truth of God that you can't get to with natural thinking. You must have the Spirit of God enable you 
or you'll never go there and you'll never see it. Romans 8, 7. <clears throat> For the mind that is set on the flesh, those are words of desire that wants these things of the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. These are powerful words. Ephesians 2, describing us before Christ changes us. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Right? I mean, the one thing Lazarus has got going for him is no ability to get up. Right? We all good on that? <clears throat> I mean, Jesus doesn't stand outside the tomb and go, come on, Lazarus, I'm serious, man. <laughs> Quit sitting in there. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, man. No, no, no. If Jesus doesn't animate him, there is nothing in Lazarus that could ever have gotten him up. He's dead. He might as well be a rock or a chair sitting there. There's no ability for him to move. You were dead as well in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, right? There's, here's, a, here's a desire component. You're dead to God, but you desire something else. You desire to follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, <clears throat> carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature <clears throat> children of wrath. Ephesians 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk, speaking to the church. Hey, church, you who have been saved by God's grace, don't walk like the Gentiles do. This is how they walk. In the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. This is the condition of those gathered before the tomb that Lazarus will emerge from. Now, can you see how difficult it will be for them to believe anything? So how does one come to faith? How are there any on this day who turn to God in belief? With that being their condition. Well, let's just let John comment for us. Back up to John chapter 6. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Right? So those of us who think, oh, if I had lived back then, and I had seen Jesus, and it wasn't just the Bible I was reading, there were people who saw those things too, and they didn't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All whom the Father gives will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now listen, who are the ones who are going to look on the Son and believe in him? Because there were those who looked on the Son and did not believe in him. There were those who watched him do miracles and did not believe in him. Who are the ones, if we, just in this passage that we've read so far, who are the ones who are going to look and believe in him? Well, they're the ones that the Father has given to him. Someone's going to respond. God has made sure of that. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he say, I have come down from heaven, right? This is an illustration of what the natural mind does with divine revelation. Right? When, when you read this, don't you get it? <laughs> like I'm the bread of life. Well, I, I get that. I know what that means. I've come down from heaven. Yes, you have. Well, these guys listen to that very same word, exact same words being said to them, and the natural mind argues and says, that's not what my test tube says. That's not what my research tells me. You're from down the street. I know where you come from, right? Natural mind, because the natural mind can't see outside the realm of the natural. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Why were there some that day? who saw what Jesus did in raising Lazarus and believed. Well, according to John, because the Father drew them to believe. And apart from that, it doesn't matter that you saw somebody come back from the dead. You will stay in your unbelief. You will stay in the orbit that your unbelief has created for your life. J.C. Ryle says, musculus observes that a wonderful example we have here of the sovereign grace of God, choosing some and leading them to repentance and faith and not choosing others. Here is the same miracle seen under the same circumstances and with the same evidence by a large crowd of persons. Yet while some believe, others believe not. If you are among those who do believe, Thank God that he has dynamited you out of your unbelief. Now, let me say this because of the way in which the Bible speaks in these categories. We understand from Scripture that for someone to come to faith, more than a sign is needed and more than words are needed. God must do something for that person to respond in faith. Yet, yet, man is fully responsible for his decision. Those who walked away and went and found the Pharisees are fully responsible for their unbelief. And they will stand before God and not a one of them will be able to say, God, you didn't draw me. Not a one. God will find them guilty of not responding to what he had set before them. And they will be responsible before him. Right? In your outline it says, they are unable to believe the witness and 
And I could also say because they don't want to believe it. This crowd who saw such a miracle, they didn't believe and they did not want to believe. Right? Stay in John. John's a good commentary on John. Chapter 5, verse 36. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You know, when you go, when you go around doing the things that Jesus did, and you have a roadmap in the Old Testament saying that the Messiah would do these kinds of things, you have a witness that's telling you, this is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. Lazarus just came forth out of the tomb. This is the guy. So there is a witness being heard by these folks. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you Refuse. So here in this one passage, you have a people who have watched signs and works take place and they do not believe them. And they have searched the scriptures and they do not believe them. They refuse to believe. The very things that bring us to Christ, they have refused to believe. Now, what I find interesting in this passage is the fact that Jesus tells them, but you search the scriptures. What kind of people are we talking about here? These are religious people. They've searched the scriptures. And the scriptures all point to Christ. I mean, when you got saved, you all of a sudden realize that. And last year we had the temple up here. We had all the pieces and the kids all learned at VBS that every piece in the temple points to one place. This whole book points to one location, the person and work of Christ. It's all about him. And so you come to the book and you read it and you search the scriptures and you miss the one thing the whole book is about? Yeah. Unbelief is a powerful, powerful thing. You know, what's interesting is when we read in John 11 that the Passover was about to occur right at the end of chapter 11. The Passover is about to occur. So from the country, folks come up early in order to purify themselves. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean... They want to get it together. They want to purify themselves. These are good religious folk. Now you do realize these are the same ones that are going to murder Christ in less than a week. The Son of God has put on human form and walked among men. And these who came to purify themselves, these who read the scriptures, are going to murder him. Let Let me just solemnly solemnly bring the reality of this into this room. You can be a very religious person. You can go to church. You can seek to purify yourself, however it is that you do. You can read the scriptures and and sacred writings and still truly not believe and surrender your life to Christ. This is not just these folks that this passage is about. This, this is about us. Now, how does, how does that happen? Go back to that passage there, verse 40 in John 5. 
There's this witness, the scriptures, the signs all witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Why is it that these do not believe? They do not believe because they cannot believe because they do not want to believe. Because they seek a glory that's different than the glory that's about God. This is the epicenter of unbelief. Right here. Why didn't they believe this? Because they had another agenda. Because there was something else that they wanted. More than what wanting to believe in Christ, in his mission, in their need of him. They wanted something else. Go back to John chapter 11. That's exactly the same issue here for these who don't believe. Verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, here here you go. Here's the reason. Here's why we don't believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we put our faith in him, then our lives will change in a way that I don't want them to change. I don't want my life to be different than it is right now. I don't want that. I, I've, got, I've got my own place here. Listen, was it because Jesus wasn't convincing enough? Was it because he hadn't done signs that overwhelmed them? They just got finished admitting it. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They didn't say, oh, that thing in Bethany, that was a big hoax, smoke and mirrors. That dude wasn't dead. They lowered him through some hole. He came walking out of there. I saw him the other day. He was in Jerusalem having coffee. (laughs) They don't deny. Isn't this amazing? They acknowledge. He brought somebody back from the dead. Add that to his resume. He's done many signs. So it wasn't a lack of evidence. How many of us feel like sometimes we're trying to convince people to believe? By overwhelming them with more evidence. Listen, do you understand? You You can drown them in evidence. And they still not believe. Unbelief is a powerful thing operating in the hearts of these folks. Pascal says there is enough evidence to convince anyone who is not set against it. But there is not enough evidence to bring anyone into the kingdom of heaven who will not come. Why do these guys not come? Because they don't want to come. They do not believe because of another competing interest. They don't want to lose their place. For these folks, it was the temple. It was their traditions. It was what they had grown up in. It was their status. We're the ruling members of society. We have position. My mom and them were this way. And my mom, mom and them's mom and them before that. This is just how we've always been. If Jesus is who he says he is, it upsets all that. Our little traditions are over. You understand, if Jesus is who he says he is, this whole temple society here goes away. 
And in that day, this is a money-making deal. This is their jobs. These Pharisees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin, this is where they get their money from. When you show up in Jerusalem and you didn't bring your own lamb with you, oh, I can fix you up. Go on down there to Joe Bob's lamb shop. You'll get your lamb for your sacrifice. And you get over there and you find out, ooh, you don't take money from my hometown. And the exchange rate is how much? You've got to be kidding me. I could get four lambs for that price back home. Oh, sorry. This is, this is their lifestyle. This is their religion. If he is who he says he is, then we're going to lose all that. Let me tell you why people don't come to Christ. It's because there's something else that we've come to that we are unwilling to give up. So that's the thing. When you define unbelief, unbelief has that sound to it like it's a belief in nothing. It's unbelief. You know, it's like this guy over here believes this guy's got nothing. He doesn't believe. No, 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 no. This guy believes something and this guy believes something else. Right? Remember the Bible says you are following the course of this world. You are following the prince of the air. You are fully alive in that sense. So unbelief is never no belief. Unbelief is always passionate, wholehearted belief in something else. And that's why these guys won't come. Because to give that up, they refused. I do not want to give that up. I do not want to give up my way of life. I do not want to give up what I'm familiar with. I do not want to give up the traditions. I don't want to give up the acceptance of my family. Right? In New Orleans, you've got issues in this category. I'm just shooting straight with you. But if you were in Jerusalem this day, you had more issues. Oh, you think we've got a religious culture going on here. We've got nothing compared to these guys. Do you realize if you were a Jew and you were going to put your faith in Christ, you're going to lose your job, your family was going to ostracize you and put you out, you lose your home, they'd take property away from you, they'd kick you out of the synagogue. So in a very quick time, for you to believe in Christ was going to change everything about who you were. And some of us today, quite honestly, well, what will this one think? And, you know, my uncles are this or that. And uh, we don't come to Christ because we don't want to give up something else. And that's what was true for these guys. And this morning, Matt, you can go ahead and come. This morning, unbelief is still a powerful thing. It's powerful because we are convinced to believe something else. And we don't believe that a little bit. If you found no value in what you believe, then perhaps you could just trip and fall into the kingdom of God. But the reality is, You've built your world into something. You've built your personality into something. You've had dreams since you were little. You wanted things to be a certain way. And, and you might think, well, you know, I, I, I like a lot about Christianity, but there's a lot over here that I don't want to give up. I mean, I just tell you, belief is not two things. True belief. Truth, true belief is not unbelief. And it is not partial belief. It's, it's not this, well, I want to hold on to my world and my life 
at least a good chunk of it, but you know, and, and then I want to follow somewhat, follow Christ. I, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm here today. I'm, I come to church a bit. And I read the Bible. I pray when I get in trouble. And you know, there's there's something going on spiritually with me. I mean, I'm kind of, I kind of want Christ, but I want this over here. Listen, no one in the Bible comes to God that way. As a matter of fact, you know what Jesus does to those who, be, who try to come that way? He runs them off. He just tells them, you're not ready to come. You need to go back and reconsider that. Now, you want that? Oh, but I want you too, Jesus. Well, if you want that and you want me, then you can have that. And you can keep it until you're convinced that you will put your faith in me. Now listen, those who believe in Christ, who fully put their faith and hope in him, that doesn't mean we become perfect. But no one comes into the kingdom by partially believing. Now, you understand the difference? You may come to Christ and do this along the way. Stumble, fall, have to get up. Wrestle in your own heart with idols that this is very important to me and I'm wrestling with what I'm going to follow Christ in this area of my life. And, and God's dealing in that area. Then you move on and you wrestle. But no one comes to Christ holding on to a piece of their life and saying, Jesus, I want to come. Can, let's, let's just talk this out. I'm really wanting you to be my savior, but you know, they've got this area over here. There's this thing about me. There's this pursuit I've always wanted. There's this aspect. I'm afraid of people. What will they think? So I'm going to hold on to this, but you can have all the rest. For some, this is the reason why Christianity doesn't work for you. Because quite honestly, it's not belief. It's unbelief. It's the passionate desire to hold on to something else besides Christ. That's what put the Son of God to death. That's what crucified Christ, was people who had their faith in something else besides Him. Let's stand up this morning and see if the Lord will help us with our unbelief issues. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for its innate power to affect faith in our hearts. Lord, thank you that in a very real spiritual way, we have today front row seats to the event at Lazarus' tomb. For you have preserved that sign's ability to affect us right here this morning. Holy Spirit, open our hearts this morning to believe, to escape from the clutches of unbelief, of some substitute belief in our lives, of some other pursuit that we have set our hope in for our lives. Of this morning, may there not be one, may there not be one, guy, by your mercy, who doesn't hear you calling them and giving them a heart to respond. I want you just to, to stay still and quiet before God. I want you to consider for a moment. If you're here, please don't, don't take yourself off the hook. And think that, well, I'm, I'm a religious person. I, I've been to church my whole life. or you know, I do some reading. I do some good things in the community. That does not exempt you or me from having something else that I believe in more than I believe in Christ. 
If you're here this morning and Christianity for you doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to be changing you. It doesn't seem to be affecting you. It seems to be kind of a cultural thing. But it may be that this morning God is calling you to truly believe. I would say fully believe. Now what what does it take for you to fully believe? It's take your life in your hands. Your whole life, everything you've ever wanted to be, everything you're not, take your whole life and this morning surrender it to Christ. You do that by prayer. You do that by the willingness of your own heart. You do that by coming to a place on June 28th, 2009, where maybe you've known a bunch of things about God and read a bunch of things, but have you ever come to a place where you said, God, my life is not my own. It's yours forever. Do with it whatever you want. I surrender it to you. If you've never done that, you can do that right now. God who sees your heart You can do it right now. You can turn to God right now and say, God, I want to do that. What he just said, I want to do that. Tell God that. Express it in your own heart. Put all your hope in wherever it is that Christ will take you. The Son of God who wrote these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God, this morning... Let life come into this place. God, let life come into hearts. Let life animate those who have not known you up until this moment, God, like I didn't. Until you came, like those that we heard this morning being baptized. Until the moment, God, where you pulled back the veil and it made sense. And you became what we wanted more than anything else. And our hearts believed in that day. God, this morning, pull back the veil. And let there be full belief, hope set in you and you alone. You are my future, God. You are my hope. Your plans for me are sufficient and good. I don't want anything else but that. And I will follow you by your grace from this moment on. Now, for some here, I want to pray because I believe that there are some here who you are, you are, you are a Christian, but you have fallen into patterns of not believing and you're white knuckling your life, clinging to something or someone. And there's this duality going on in your heart and some point in the past, you came to the point where you said to Christ exactly what we just prayed, but something has crept back into your life. And you are wrestling with unbelief. And you, like this crowd, doesn't want to give up your place. I don't want to give up my place. I don't want to give up my dream. I don't want to give up my money and my pursuit. I don't want to give up my place before people. I don't want to give up the things in life that I think are going to really be life to me. I don't want, I don't want to give them up. And you've been wrestling with God over that. Listen, this morning, I, I want to give the opportunity for the grace of God to come invade that moment in your life. 
And for you to come this morning and say, God, I want to give up my place. I don't don't want this thing in my life this way. I want to give up my place. I want to give it to you, God. I'm going to trust it to you. I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore in this area. I'm going to surrender this thing to you. I've taken it back. I'm giving it to you again today. Listen, if you're here today, I'm not going to ask anybody to come pray for you. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. But I want you to come forward. Actually, whatever it is, I want you to take it with you, so to speak, in your hands. I want you to come lay it down here. Now, when you leave here today, I'm going to want you to leave it here. Leave it right up here in the front. Whatever it is in your life, it's a source of unbelief. I want you to come give it back to God and say, God, you have it. I only want you. So if you're here this morning and that's been a wrestling for you, I want to ask you to come do that. Can you come do that right now? Can you come receive grace from God? Come receive from God. Give that to Him in exchange. Receive the grace of God that leads into belief. We believe because of the grace of God. We hear the Word of God, but without the Holy Spirit's grace, we don't believe. God wants to lead you by grace. God wants to give you days ahead that are simply based in Him working favorably in your life and walking in freedom, receiving joy. As Matt leads us in this song, if you feel led by God, if you feel the prompting of the Spirit of God in your heart, come. Come and trust Him. Come and lighten your load and let Him have this and walk from here with a heart full of belief.